The Bible reading is from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. The the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Please keep your Bibles open. Thanks, Kathleen. You probably heard those uh, verses in the song we sang just before. But uh, lovely to hear them again. Thank you, Kathleen, for reading them to us. And we've got a little children's outfit going out to their uh, special lesson. And Debbie's going to lead them there. While they're going, can I say that after we finish, uh, we normally have um, a chance to ask questions. I think today that's going to be really important because there may be things I say that are not entirely easy to take in. So question time is going to be fairly important today. Uh, Please um, feel free to say what you like when we get to that point. Okay? So let's make a start. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. And you know the story. We've read it already. Two men went to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Do you get that? Two men. Just two. Only two. Always two. I don't mean there were just that number of people that day in the temple. I mean there are only two ways in which people can approach God. We will either approach God as a Pharisee or we will approach God as a tax collector. Let me try and explain to you the difference between those two by picking on each one at a time. Let's start with the Pharisee, and uh, we've seen lots of Pharisees in Luke's Gospel, like we've uh, done as we've gone through chapter by chapter by chapter. The Pharisees are everywhere. They're almost in every single chapter. They know a lot about God. In fact, at times they come across as thinking they know about more about God than Jesus, and in that sense, they have been complete pests. Every time they've come up with Jesus, there's been a disagreement. And talking of pests, I hope you remember last week I said I absolutely hated mosquitoes. And uh, one of the things in our family that we've never been able to explain is why there are mosquitoes. I mean, what purpose do mosquitoes solve in the, uh, serve in the purpose of things? But they, they seem to be everywhere. Come the summer, uh, you can't uh, move without uh, getting bitten by one in the evening. You wish you weren't there, but they are there all the time. 
just like the Pharisees. They seem to be everywhere around Jesus. And you wonder why Luke tells us so much about them. Why not airbrush them out of the picture so we're only left with the good guys? Well, the reason is because the, tax, the Pharisees are not there in the Bible because they're like mosquitoes. They're there in the Bible because they're like mirrors. They're there to show us what we are like, what we want to be like. These are the good guys. And if you take a look at the description Jesus gives of uh, this man in the temple who's praying uh, in between verses 10 and 11, uh, you'll see that uh, this is the person who is uh, going to be the kind of person that every church member would want to be if you go through that little list. If you're a Christian parent, you'd want your kids to be doing these things. So just uh, look at uh, what he's doing. Uh, he's a man who uh, fasts. He's the ideal, perfect believer. And the first thing we find out about him is that he fasts. Fasting is the time that people have when they want to seek God and his help more than they want to seek food. God is more important to them than eating uh, when it comes to really wanting him to turn up close and uh, help them. He tithes. So in other words, here's a person who wants to remind himself that all his money comes from God and therefore he can be generous. He can trust the God who looks after him so well and therefore he's free to give. He says he hasn't robbed or done any evil. What does that mean? It means that relationships are important to him. He doesn't want to exploit or hurt people in these ways. He hasn't committed adultery. That means he believes in marriage. He wants to be happy in his marriage by being faithful. He wants to have a stable family rather than a broken family. So this is really a way of life that comes out of the Bible. He's living as the Bible tells us to live in all these different areas. Can you see that? And therefore, surely if you're a parent, you would want a son like this, wouldn't you? If our children lived like this, they'd be protected from uh, a lot of the pain that comes from making ungodly decisions. They can leave great and deep scars in our lives. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have a child who is like this all the time? If you're a pastor, it's a dream come true if every church member is like this. Certainly there won't be any problems with the church budget, is there? would there be? If everybody's tithing and giving with this kind of generosity. And you wouldn't need to invest hours of counselling either because you won't need to extract people from the mess that they've got themselves into by making bad decisions. And you notice that he is in the temple praying. He hasn't dropped off at 14 like everybody else in the country when they get to that age. His faith is made to last. Now his prayer seems like he's boasting but it seems like he's examining, he's examining himself against a personal checklist of godliness. And let me tell you, if we could pass a checklist like this, 
we'd be really grateful for the progress that we're making in our Christian lives. And yet Jesus says, although he thinks he is on the road to heaven, and although many of us would think that that's the perfect believer, actually, he is the perfect candidate for hell. That's the shock. In this little story, Jesus says, it's only the tax collector that goes home justified, in other words, put right with God. Acceptable to God. The Pharisee isn't. So we need to catch the surprise that here's somebody who is living out the Bible, as far as you can tell, and yet he's going to die under God's judgment one day. That's the Pharisee. And there are many in church that would look at that man and see a mirror of what they aspire to be like as well. But let's turn to the second guy who's the tax collector. He's the hero of the story. He's only got one thing to say for himself. And that is, God have mercy on me, the sinner. That's how he describes himself. I'm not quite sure why the English translations say, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Because in the original, it says, God have mercy on me, the sinner. As far as he's concerned, he's the only one around. He hasn't got eyes for any other sinner in the room. He's the only one on the wrong side of God as far as he is concerned. But for him, there is hope. Certainly, he is still talking to God, even though he can't uh, bring himself to look up to him. So the relationship is strained, but it's not over. And that's the case because he's still talking to God in the temple. That is really important. Because that is the place where sacrifices are offered so that sinners can be justified or put right or made acceptable to God. Now that simple little prayer of his admits that he can't put himself right with God. He needs God to have mercy on me for, for that to happen. But he can ask for that to happen because he's in the temple and therefore he knows that an animal has been sacrificed in his place for his sins. So it's like God has not had mercy on the animal, therefore he can have mercy on him. Because God is too fair to punish the same sin twice. And as we go on studying this gospel, you're going to find out that um, the cross replaces the temple. Because that's the place where Jesus takes an animal's role and dies in the place of the sinner. So in that sense, it's like God doesn't have mercy on Jesus in order that he can then have mercy on the one he has died to protect. That's why that first uh, song that we sang was just so wonderful, isn't it? That... Uh, it speaks of that kind of uh, protection that Jesus gives when he dies. 
So the ending of that story is that the sinners can go home justified or put right with God or made acceptable to God. And therefore, as that man goes home, he can go home thinking what confidence he can have that he is now loved by God deeply despite whatever he's done that stopped him even looking up. He goes home deeply grateful, humbly grateful that God loves him so, so much. That's what will fill his mind on the journey home. He has been justified. And therefore he goes home. You might just think he looks pretty miserable there, but he goes home, the happiest man on earth, because he knows that God loves him deeply. He walks home knowing that God loves him so much that he was willing to sacrifice another in his place, that he might be loved and forgiven. So the heart change, the heart filling of his life would be uh, with enormous gratitude and joy. That's how he's going home. So what's that got to teach us today? Well, I guess it's easy, isn't it, to come into a church if you're new to being in places like this. And you know how we come when we're walking through the door? We've got one head on. And that is we think that we're here because we're going to read the Bible because it's going to teach us how to be good people. And therefore it is impossible nearly when someone listens to a vicar like me that they automatically filter whatever I'm saying, they take it that I'm telling you how to be good. Because after all, that's what church is about. Surely that's what religion is about. It is how to be good in order that God will accept you. That is how we're all programmed to think. Can you see from today's passage that being a, a Christian is actually admitting that you are not and never will be a good person. And you need someone to pay a sacrifice for all the way we've turned away from God. Can you see, that is really what the Bible is there to tell us. Let me try and put this to you personally in a way that might just help to see how serious it is. Now look, I include myself in this as well. Don't think I'm being six foot above contradiction or anything, but let me just say it like it was you, okay? How do you know that you are seriously living away from God? You don't need to go back and try and remember all the bad things that you've done. All you've got to understand is that we're so seriously wrong with God that he would be right to pass the death penalty on us. And we know that that is the case because Jesus suffered the death penalty on our behalf. Now, he wouldn't have needed to do that unless it was necessary. Therefore, I must be on the wrong side of God 
if God has got to go to that kind of length to put me right with him. Now that is the thing that makes Christianity really hard. To accept the fact that we are that seriously in trouble. That we should receive the death penalty from God for the way that we have lived. That is really hard to accept. That's really hard for us to agree to. A lot of people think Christianity is hard because you've got to try and be good. No, Christianity is hard because you've got to have the humility to admit that you aren't and that you're seriously not good. It's so hard for us to accept that we are that far away from God that sometimes God has got to let us get, into our, get, get ourselves into a real mess in our lives because then we might just register that we are failures. You see, it's very hard for proud people to get close to God. But failures, they've got less pride to step over if they want to uh, come to God for mercy. And it's only when we understand how far away, how failed we've been in our uh, relationship with God that we'll then really appreciate someone else has come to take the death penalty on our place, in our place. So the Bible is not about us being good. It's about the Lord Jesus, cover to cover, and all that he has done to put us right with God. That is what the Bible is there to teach. And whenever we read the Bible, if we read it with wise minds, we would say, well, can you see from that little bit of the Bible how far I am from God? So when you read this little part of the Bible about the tax collector and the Pharisee, the wise thing is to say, well, that Pharisee is me. I'm like that. And I need somebody to uh, take the death penalty on my behalf that I might go home deeply grateful to God that he loves me still. What happens if you're churchy? Let me ask you a question like this. In what ways have you progressed as a Christian since the time you would consider yourself to have been one? What progress have you made since the time that you might say uh, you've taken God seriously? I think it's an interesting question to ask because it's so easy for us to think that, well, when we begin to follow God and take Him seriously, then we need the cross as a starter, as a doorway to step into the kingdom of God. We need the cross for us to do that. And then thereafter, we need to put the hard yards in uh, if you're a rugby player. Uh, to put the hard yards in to make progress and get towards your goal. And from there on in, the key thing is how you're going to live the victorious life, achieve your destiny, uh, use all those phrases to show how you're going to just progress and with determination and ruggedness start uh, getting towards God 
with uh, greater commitment. So easy to see progress in the Christian life in that kind of way. The victorious life, we hear it called. But doesn't this passage show us that the real place to arrive at and aim at is the place where we see ourselves as failures, not as victorious. After all, look at the man who thought he was victorious in this passage. So, if we are to mature and grow up as Christians and see ourselves making progress, then the man who's made real progress and the woman who's made real progress is the one who is increasingly able to admit they've got it wrong, they've got it wrong, they've got it wrong, and then the cross doesn't become a doorway into the kingdom of God. It becomes the home in which we live because we are always grateful to this God who's provided a way back to him through failure. So if you're a churchy person, Here's how we see progress. It's in the increasing ability to admit that we have failed and how much we need Jesus as a result. What happens if you're a Christian? What if you've noticed that God has changed you so that you aren't as bad-tempered as you used to be and you are more generous than you were before? and that you really are not like most people. Should you thank him for that? Wouldn't that be a good thing to do? I suggest actually it isn't. Only thank God for what he has done in Jesus. Certainly by all means, thank him for forgiving us in our failure and defeat when we realize what a disappointment we've been to him in the past, certainly thank him for the cross. And thank him for the wonderful, generous character of the Lord Jesus. Because as you look at the checklist of the Pharisee in verses 10 and 11, you can certainly praise Jesus for the way that uh, he was not like other men. Praise him that he was faithful and not adulterous. That he was true to the promises that he made, especially to his father and to his people. Uh, he's someone who gave, not a tithe, but the whole of his life. He's a person whose goodness we can savor and praise. Praise him for that. Now, of course it's all right for other people to praise, our, praise God, for the changes that might have happened in our lives. And it's certainly a good thing for us to praise God for the changes that he has brought about in other people. That's okay. If other people want to praise God for your progress, let them. But be very careful how you inhabit your own praise. Because it seems that that's what the Pharisee did. When he began to say, hey, I'm making progress. I think I'll praise God for me. So, 
Let me stop there because it's a good opportunity, I think, probably to take uh, further questions and to tease out the understanding of this passage in that way. But uh, do you see what I mean? Let's not be bothered at all about the progress we ourselves may or may not be working, except be bothered if you're not loving God for the cross, because it probably shows that you're not bothered about the ways that we let God down. But if we are concerned about our failure as God's people, and therefore loving Jesus that he would accept sinners who just simply do nothing but cry out to him for mercy. If you're someone who really deeply needs a God like that, then I think progress is um, where Jesus would want us to be. Let's pray, and then we'll take questions after that. The Pharisees said, God, I thank you, I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, and adulterers. I fast. I give. Lord Jesus, we want to thank our Father. You are not like other people. You are generous. You are loving. You are faithful. You obeyed your Father perfectly. And yet you died in the place of sinners so that we can go home with your perfection. Please show us more and more how much we need your mercy so that we might grow more and more in humble praise for your goodness to us. And we praise this in, and we pray this in the name of Jesus for his glory. Amen.